Welcome to Midnight Book Club. I'm John Hart. And I'm Alexa. Pour yourself a stiff drink, pull up a chair, and get lost in the fantasy for a while. Yeah, um, war. What exactly is it good for, Alexa? What do you, what do you think it's good for? I think it's good for some things, actually. It's a controversial take. It, I mean, it's got to be good for something, maybe. I think it's good for the chosen few. Yeah, I mean, probably. That that does make sense that the people that profit from it probably are pretty happy with it. War is a pyramid scheme. Oh, whoa. Whoa. You know, you might be onto something there. <laughs> you might have did something there. Hang on. <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, no, that, that, that might have been a thing. Yeah, like, you know, you always think you can get to the top, but not yeah, it's, really. It's really. it's really the people at the top that are, I mean, as we see in the chapter later on, it's really the people at the top that are uh, the ones that are, you know, profiting from this. You need to have the illusion of mobility, thus ranks in the military, because mm-hmm. there has to be something to sell towards, like, Look at what you could do. Look at what you could make. Look at how powerful you could be. Yeah, I mean, like any good drug enterprise, you really only make money at the top. Yes, right. So you need, like, you know, your your top fifteen guys, and everyone else is just fucked. Yeah, exactly. You got your you got your top fifteen guys. They're in the in the top peak pyramid. The, the diamond they're, bronze they're in the, level. <laughs> they're in the platinum level, Alexa. The platinum queen level. The platinum queen level. I like it. I like that. Yes, um, and they're they're in the they're in the platinum level. They're in the pyramid within the pyramid. And then double black diamonds. Wait, is that difficulty or like quality? I don't know. It's up to you to decide. I mean, I would assume that a double black it's aspirational. Di- it's aspirational. <laughs> Triple uh. sapphire. Wait, wait, aren't sapphires below diamonds? No, John Mark, keep up with me here. All right. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm I, trying, I guess that you have three. I'm, tr- I'm trying to come up with a ranking system, and I'm sorry that my logic is eluding you. I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of eluding me. Like you, you have, and so then you, you have <laughs> your tin and copper level. Wait, why are they up there? Because tin and copper are really cool. Duh. Aren't, aren't tin and copper worse than gemstones? Like John Mark. Try to follow where I'm going here, okay? I, I think I think you're just you're just running your your logic train is at like a full bullet speed, yes. like high 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 speed rail to, to Japan, mm-hmm. um, and I'm just kind of like all back on the Doc Brown, you know, Back to the Future right, steam yeah. locomotive mm-hmm. with the special magic logs. Well, wait till you hear about the cardboard quantum level. Cardboard quantum level. Now that that is that's taking two things, you you have cardboard, which is obviously not cool, and then you just throw the word quantum on it, mm-hmm. and thus making science, right? Because that's how science works. Mm-hmm. You throw a science phrase at something that's non-sciencey, and it becomes mm-hmm. sciencey. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Like titanium helium. Well, okay, but titanium's already sciencey. Okay, true. How about pearl? Pearl nanometer. Ooh. You can keep that one for free. Thank you. I'm running out of levels, though, Jomer. Well, how many more levels do we need? <sighs> Infinite, really. Infinite? Okay. Um, the only limit is to your imagination. Okay. I'm thinking uh, we need a we need a, an obsidian paperclip level. I like it. Yep. I like it. Okay. Where does that one fall, though? Mm, 
It's like not high, but not low either. So I'm thinking it's below the uh, the Pearl nanometer, um, but maybe be- maybe above the quantum cardboard. Yes. Send it. So today we have we have a doozy of a, an episode, folks. Yeah, there is a lot to cover. It's so all about war. All about war. In my infamous line rating of of length, um, you know how sometimes I'll I'll mention my I'll mention the length of my notes. The longer episodes have been like 280 or 300 lines. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is just under 400, like 399. Um, because there is a lot that happens. Basically, so this chapter basically wraps up the entire war. Like, the whole yeah. war. <laughs> the the thing we've been building up to since mm-hmm. Blood of Elves. Like, yeah, yep. since the first book in the saga. So, mm-hmm. it's been a long time coming, and we kind of forgot about it. We kind of forgot <laughs> about the war. <laughs> in between all of the other things that yep. uh, we've been covering, and mm-hmm. we've been really invested in Geralt, Ciri, and Yennefer's storylines, but now we kind of have to return to whatever happened to that war thing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, going... So... This chapter really surprised me. It's is a really good chapter, in all honesty. Yeah, it um, gets really good because I yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. It starts with a lot of dry stuff. Oh god, a lot yes. of big picture stuff. Oh my god, it's so boring at um, first. And so, like, I could read on your face, mm-hmm. like when we were going through this, like, ugh, is this whole chapter going to be like this? So I'm not going to lie. Okay, so I think I've mentioned it before. Um, but anyone, so way back when, when I was a young kid, um, I got in the motivation in my brain to read every chapter or like a chapter of the Bible every day. Um, back when I was doing that. Right. Um, and it goes well, like you started on like January 1st, like, yeah, I'm going to read a chapter of the Bible every day. And then you get to like, you get through like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy. Ugh, both of those are rough. <laughs> um, and there's nothing wrong with them, but it's literally chronicling the lineage of David. Um, and it's like so-and-so beget so-and-so who beget so-and-so. And it's literally like each each one is like 100 pages of, of that. Um, so the first good couple of pages are basically like uh, them chronicling like every every in, every party that's involved in this war. <laughs> Or this battle, I should say. Um, yes. So it's it's a it's a it's a census. Um, well, because we have to be reminded of where everyone is and who is participating. It's it's one of those things that like going through it, I was like, man, I'm really glad Anse was keeping track of this, and I trust <laughs> him to not leave plot holes because he we know that he's really good at filling in plot holes. Um, but because I have not been keeping track of where these people are, um, you told me, and like the the first the beginning of the uh, the chapter started up, and you're like, yeah, we got to go back to the war and finish that up. And I was just sitting there. I was like, I don't really care. I just want to see what happens with you know with the with the party. I want to see what happens with Siri. Um, I don't I don't care what happens with the war. But like my like logical brain is like, no, he has to finish it. Like otherwise, it's just a big big gaping plot hole um and anse doesn't do that he's not lazy like me um me as a writer i'd probably just be like "Eh, nobody cares about the war Uh, and the war ended nicely (laughs) everybody held hands um so 
But the astounding thing about this chapter is he makes you care about it. Yes. And that was what that was where I was going with that was that like by about like halfway through the chapter, I'm like deeply engrossed and like absolutely consumed. And like it's so well written. All the characterization is fantastic. Like the plot points are exciting and interesting. Um, and there's a lot of action and like you're engaged with the characters. It's fantastic writing. Yes. Um, and he really did save the best for last on on all of it. Um, so, yes, this is a phenomenal chapter. It went from, like, one of the most boring chapters to, like, probably one of the better chapters, like, in in the series uh, uh, towards the end. So um, there, we do have a lot to cover, though. Yes, and um, of course we are covering Chapter 8 of Lady of the Lake. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We often don't mention on the top what chapter we're covering do we not do that (laughs) sometimes no i try to do it at the top of the summary Mm -hmm. and of course it's in the episode description yeah yeah. you should know but um so we're getting very close to the end Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we at this point have only four chapters chapters left yeah and so we're getting really close Mm -hmm. and we're definitely feeling that tension in the writing. Like, yeah. Everything's yep. really high stakes now. Yes. Yes. I mean, it was before, but now it's like, you know. Yeah. Somehow they, he cranked it up to a 12. Like I, you know, you, you, you go up to 10 and you want to, you want to push it over. You want to push it over the edge there just a little bit, but you've got nowhere to go. So where do you go? Up to 11? I guess. He's already there though. That's my point <laughs> is that he was already at 11 and now yes. he's even gone up to 12. Yes. So because we have so much to cover, we should probably um, move right on into it. Um, so it's kind of hard enough. So happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Spooktober. Woo, spooky. Um, this is our second Halloween on the show, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's not really any Halloween type stuff in the episode. So unfortunately, uh, we're just going to have to kind of move into the, the long and the skinny here. We're going to get into the very scary topic of war. I mean, okay, so just as a heads up, also like slight uh, content warning, um, this chapter is pretty gory. Yeah, like it's pretty, it's pretty brutal and pretty violent. Um, No particular type of violence other than just like medieval warfare and people just like getting absolutely butchered. Um, So... Honestly, if you've been reading up to this point without much of an issue, you probably won't have too much of an issue with this chapter. But um, if you are squeamish, I guess just kind of a heads up. Um, There's some pretty brutal stuff that happens in this episode. So very metal. It's yeah, it's it's some pretty it's like a metalocalypse video type thing. So it's it's pretty metal. So we begin with a short reading from Yare of Ellender, uh, who is telling us why the Great Battle was known as the Battle of Brenna rather than the Battle of Old Bottoms, which is how it was initially known. And really the reason is because Old Bottoms um, was a town that fell into obscurity, while Brenna was a town that became really big. And plus, no one really liked the sound of old bottoms old bottom doesn't really exactly sound fitting also you're gonna you're gonna blow the the spoiler as to who the author is right out of the gate well it blows it for us because in the reading it signed yeah it signed it it signed at the bottom though so you read the reading and then you're like oh it's from yare 
Okay, anyway, we're going to be bombarded <laughs> with spoilers about Yare. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> throughout the chapter. Yeah, so yeah. it's a good primer. So this gives us very valuable insight that Yare survived this battle and that he became a writer. A well-known famous scribe. Chronicling this war and this battle. Our chapter opens on a classroom um, in a military academy that are learning about the Battle of Brenna. The professor is insisting that this is one of the most important battles in military history. He's chiding his students who aren't describing the correct answers to his questions or even the right perspective regarding Nilfgaard. Um, And then we cut to the actual battle. And Pretty Kitty, who we've heard about before, her name is Julia Abetamarco. And she's talking to a scout who is reporting on the approaching Nilfgaardian battalions. Apparently, there's a lot of them, which we could expect. Um, Pretty Kitty and one of the colonels um, from the reconnaissance platoon are overlooking the valley that the Nilfgaardian army are in. And they recognize all the platoons. She's pointing out specific ones, like there's the Derlanian um, platoon, there's the Vicovarian. Mm. So various territories in Nilfgaard are represented. There's about 46,000 Nilfgaardians in all, which is a lot. And there's definitely a numbers disadvantage on the northern side, or at least that's what we're being led to think at this point. And so Pretty Kitty and um, the ward room. It's like her closest generals and her closest like lieutenants and yeah. All the officers that make decisions. She is one of the mercenaries, um, one of the free company leaders. And so she's talking to the other leaders of the free company. Um, They're called condottieris as well, um, which is basically just another word, an Italian word for a mercenary. She's talking to her other officers. They're talking about how this is a good staging area for the battle. Like it's a great vantage point. We learn that there's about 12,000 infantry from Redania, 10 cavalry companies, um, 3,000 reserve footmen, eight free mercenary companies. Um, obviously, that's not a lot in comparison to Nilfgaard. Yare is one of the people that's taking note of the contents of these armies, and we get little um, descriptions from him throughout. Um, but he's writing from the future, we later learn. Like, he's not writing on the battlefield, he's writing as an old man. Whoa. So that's just something that we get throughout. Yari is writing these notes. He's kind of in this idyllic landscape, and one of his grandchildren is running up to him. Um, he catches a falling inkwell with the stump of his left hand. Whoa! As his grandchild runs off, he goes back to writing. So we cut back to the battle scene, and the Nilfgaardians are standing there in formation. Um, everyone's wondering why Marshal Cohorn, who is the leader of this whole center army group for Nilfgaard, isn't giving the order to march forward. He's just sort of standing there menacingly. Then we cut to Cohorn, who's talking with his own group of officers and leaders, and we learn that he's waiting on reconnaissance of his own um so he's waiting for scouts to go up the hill because he can't see what's over the right side of the battlefield so we cut to that patrol and um the sergeant in the patrol is having a lot of stomach issues because there's a huge battle on he's the he's got anxiety poops <laughs> 
Um, and he describes it as like several angry eels inside of his guts that are looking for ways out. And so the sergeant is thinking about all the rumors about the North and how they've captured elves um, and how that elf had his fingers cut off, his tongue cut out, his eyes gouged out. And obviously that makes someone very nervous which is exactly the kind of rumor you want around. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that you want spreading into the the ranks of your opponent. So one of the members of the patrol turns to him. Um, he keeps kind of trying to usher them back, like, hey, we've seen enough. Like, we don't need to go any further. One of his patrol is like, hey, like, shouldn't we go up to the top of that hill to see what's over it? And he's like... No, no, we've gone far enough. We don't want to get too far into army territory. Let's just go back. We cut back to Cohorn, who, after getting the report from his patrol, orders his companies to start attacking. But he does hold some companies back, and he's like, yeah, you, 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 go. You, 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 stay here. And he gives the standard sort of pep talk line. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, <laughs> may the great sun enlighten your glory. Then we meet a new character, even though we've already met some people this guy is related to before. Mm-hmm. So our new character is Milo Rusty Vanderbeck, a halfling and a field surgeon. He is related to the murderous hobbits that we met um, that dispatched um, Yare's misadventurous buddies this is a civil war style field hospital um, i well okay so like i don't know if they even had that level of technology but that's this what is I'm like, picturing, like yeah, that's what i pictured too like so yes it is a field surgeon tent he takes in you know the smell of iodine and strong ammonia in the air and he's admiring how clean everything is because it doesn't stay this way for long um, and he's contemplating the assistants who have been assigned to him. And these names might sound a little familiar to you. Mm-hmm. First, Shawnee, a medical student from Oxenfurt. Iola, a priestess from the Temple of Melitol. This is Iola the first. Iola the first, not Iola the second. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the one that Geralt met that had taken a vow of silence. Not sure yep. what happened to that. I think... I- Never mind. You raise a good question. Never mind. It's, Hang on. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, maybe it was only for like the year or something like that I, until she did a thing. I maybe. I don't know. And then Marty Sodergren, a sorceress. And we've met all three of these characters before. Um, Shawnee and Iola have both slept with Geralt, weirdly mm-hmm. enough. Um, Marty Sodergren was um, in attendance at the party the night before hell broke loose at Ertuza. She met Geralt that night and um, she was the one that found the Merlin guy dead and like ran into Geralt in the hall and was like, I just watched this guy die. And Geralt's like, that's cool. How do I get over to the place I want to get to? Yeah, I forgot about that little encounter. Yeah, where Geralt is kind of it, where she's like the most important man of our of our world yeah. is like dead, and Geralt's just like cool, cool, cool. Uh, how do I get up the escape hatch here? Yeah, so uh, Milo or Rusty is really worried about Marty um, and Iola. Really, he's worried about everyone um, because they all are a little green. Um, no mm, one has mm. the kind of experience in the field. They're all really young. Well, except Marty. We don't really know how old she is. He believes that Shawnee is a little too academic, likely to lose her nerve in the moment. She's just a student. Um, she 
she's really young. So Rusty continues looking around, kind of explaining the lay of the land to um, his assistants. And he points out, oh, the blacksmith has a bunch of tools so he can break out people from suits of armor if he needs to. Basically, like, he pointed pointed out that there's a blacksmith there. And, like, I never really thought about it. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. Because, like, people need their armor fixed and sharpened their weapons and stuff like that. Um, But he's like... No, the blacksmith is hanging by me because he needs to, like, cut people out of their armor when it gets deformed. I was like, oh, yeah, I never would have even thought of, like, the jaws of life on these, like, suits of armor type thing. Like, that's kind of a horrid thing to think about, but it's there. Yeah, he's trying to prime his assistants for what's going to happen in a couple of minutes here. He gives the speech he says in a moment over there people will start slaughtering each other and a moment after that moment the first casualties will appear everyone knows what they're supposed to do each one of us knows their duties and their place if everyone obeys what they ought to obey nothing can go wrong over there almost a hundred thousand soldiers will begin to wound each other in very elaborate ways There are, including two other hospitals, 12 of us doctors. Not for all of the world will we manage to help all of those that are in need, not even a scanty percentage of those in need. No one expects that. But we're going to treat them because it is our raison d'etre, our reason to be, to help those in need, so we shall help as many of those as we manage to help. We won't manage to do much more than we're capable of, but we shall all do our best to make sure it won't be much less. So we cut to a constable who's reporting to King Foltest. The Nilfgaardians are attacking. Foltest says, then we shall meet them with dignity. Uh, The leader of the Free Company yells out loudly and thunderously, death to the Black Cloaks. And the war is on. The battle has commenced. So um, in this chapter, there's a lot of jumping around and a lot of various narrators. And so this next section is um, from a halfling and the leader of one of these convoys. His name is Andy Bybervelt. So Mm -hmm. he is related to the Bybervelts. Yep. Um, I think this was kind of done intentionally in the in the narration style to kind of illustrate the chaos of war. Um, But yeah, it does make for some chaotic note taking. Yeah, and so Andy Bybervelt is narrating these opening um, actions of the war. Um, so he describes that there's this volley of arrows um, raining upon them. Uh, and this was not the first one that um, he had seen. Um, these are, by the way, these halflings are um, like people that are running out to get the bodies. Oh, okay. So, I think I missed um, that bit. They are, you know, equipped with carts. And so they're like running back and forth and transporting people over. Um, And so he's like with two or three of his other comrades. One is a coward. One is saying, I should like, we should all duck beneath the cart, boys. And they're all like looking at him in pity because like they know it doesn't really matter. Like that they're too far away anyway. Um, and so Andy Bybervelt says um, there will be another round of arrows, and he's right. Um, suddenly, um, there's a lot of squealing on the field um, of the cavalry that's meeting with the pikemen. There's the heavy pounding of steel on steel. 
The Nilfgaardian cavalry charges in on the Temerian infantry, forming a wedge shape. Um, the infantry are able to crush and narrow the wedge by beating the cavalry off their horses with pikes and flails. Uh, for every one infantryman that's lost, two cavalrymen are taken down. And um, as one of these um, Nilfgaardian cavalry, we get this point of view of this guy who's in the midst of the battle, who's killing a bunch of people. Um, he's wondering, like, what is the point of all this and who is this for? Which are excellent questions. <laughs> we cut to several students who are trying to give an oral report on this battle. And um, one student is giving a really terrible report um, saying, you know, a lot of filler words, isn't really sure. And the professor stops and says, fail, sit down. Um, the student is like, I don't know why we have to learn this stuff anyways. It's ancient and pointless. And this history is so old and so uninteresting. Why do we have to learn it anyways? Yeah. And so another student stands up and says, oh, I can answer that. And we're like, okay, right away, we know this is the teacher. Nerd. <laughs> and um, so the professor calls on her and says, go ahead, Nemu. This is our pal, Nemu, as a little girl. And so she starts to speak and says, so the madams of the lodge needed to allow for this battle to happen so that all the leaders of the continent would see how bloody and dangerous this war would be. After they had gotten their full taste of blood and saw how bad and drawn out this war would be, uh, the Lodge would force the world leaders to sign the Peace Treaty of Sintra. And the professor says, very good, Nemu. Um, I would give you a gold star if you hadn't used the word so at the beginning of the answer. And um, you're just mad that she was so right. So this is the this is a mage school um that Nimu attended so we know that after getting a little context she Nimu uses words like holy mother philippa holy mother Asir. so yeah. we know that the members of the lodge are very venerated wherever she is or in the future i don't know it yeah that i forgot about that little bit of color and it also shows us that the lodge is very involved in making this battle happen um, or at least not intervening to prevent it. Yes. So back at the field surgeon's tent, um, Rusty is looking over a wounded man, um, narrating crushed thigh bone. Arteries are intact. Otherwise, they would have been brought us. Otherwise, they would have brought us a corpse. Uh, there's not much we can do here. Um, we have to. We only have to. There's not much we can add here, only take away. And he asks Shani to hand him a knife. And the guy is like begging for him not to, that he'd rather die. And Rusty says, well, I can't let you die. I'm a doctor. Marty, give us some anesthesia. Rusty plunges the knife into the man's leg. The man howls um, for a human very inhumanly. So um, we cut to a messenger reporting to the constable uh, for Tamaria, Jan Atalis. And the constable asks, from whom do you report? And uh, the messenger responds, from Graf de Reuter, who says, we've stopped the Black Cloaks, but we need reinforcements. The constable says, there are no reinforcements. You have to hold them. So back at the field surgeon tent, uh, Rusty says, it's a good thing this man was carried delicately. Someone has already done us the good fortune of doing a very clean and precise laparotomy. Uh, so a laparotomy is a 
a type of surgery that is done um, by making very, very tiny incisions um, and then basically putting little robot hands inside the incisions and then doing the surgery with the little tiny, teeny, tiny robot hands. Um, and it makes it be, it's less invasive than like having someone's hands inside you and like cut open um, because the little tiny robot hands can do less, you know, do more in less space. But they're um, not doing with it with tiny robot hands. No, he was kind of making a joke that like this dude has basically he's been stabbed in the gut. Um and the joke is that like, oh, they've basically done a, a very precise surgical job here. But no, he's actually just been stabbed in the gut. Yeah, and so he asks Shawnee, what's your diagnosis? And Shawnee recoils. Rusty says, Oh well, it's easy enough just to smell. What's the matter? Have you only known men from the outside up until this point? So another another little aside here that he's kind of joking at is the fact that um, during surgery, if you nick the colon um, or like get cut into the colon, it smells like what you would expect the inside of a colon to smell like, which is a poop factory, for lack of a better word. Sorry. Um, so yeah, like you can smell it kind of thing. And that's that's what he's saying is that like, his large intestine has been has been cut. So he asked the uh, assistants to get him the arterial clamps. Um, he says, as you can see, the abdominal cavity is throbbing and wounded. Uh, he asked for Marty more of her for more of her priceless magic, the anesthesia. And the man begins to ask rather lucidly, who's winning this? And Rusty says, son, in your condition, it doesn't matter who's winning. Uh, so we cut to the fighting on the left wing, um, and the Nilfgaardians are trying to charge on the left flank, which contains the fifth armored company from Vizima and, um, the Landsneck mercenaries, um, who do not frighten easily from cavalry charges. The Nilfgaardian cavalry, um, would break on the left, then fall back to regroup and push from the right, breaking like ocean waves against the rock of the shore. But like an old Sparrowhawk, Cohorn knew where to attack and peck his enemy. The Nilfgaardian cavalry pushes hard on the right flank and the dwarves of the Free Company who are facing the prospect of being surrounded. Um, tiny little aside here I'm noticing as I'm listening to it. Um, there's a lot of color language in this. Yeah, uh, so what, and- what's being described there is um, it's kind of a push and pull there Mm. like no one's getting the clear advantage yeah Uh, well what i was going to say is that there's a lot of color language in this in this chapter um describing what's happening um i usually have a tendency to cut that out um in my note taking um and when you're doing that in a battle scene i just realized basically all it leaves is like the bad guys charged in on the left and then they pulled back. Um, it just pulls, a, it removes a lot of the weight and a lot of the importance of the scene. So I apologize for my kind of really watered down note taking as to like what, as like the direct, you know, things that happened. Sorry. So we cut to an ally messenger, um, Cornet Aubrey, who's attempting to deliver an order to the right flank. Uh, one of the Brugian companies is being pushed back into the Golden Pond and desperately fighting to stay alive. Several Nilfgaardians have broken off and surrounded him, and he starts to run, and he's on a very fast steed named Shakita. 
Uh, suddenly, a woman on horseback quickly dispatches um, several Nilfgaardians around him, and she introduces herself as Julia Abetamarco, or Pretty Kitty, and her face is just absolutely covered in blood. Uh, she asks where he's heading, and he says he's gotten orders for Barclay Els, um, who is the leader of the Platoon of the Dwarves, and she says that he'll never get there in time, um, that the Nilfgaardians are starting to surround them. Um, so to come with her, they manage to ride out and evade them. And then she introduces him to Barclay, uh, the leader of the Dwarven Company, who has seated himself upon the back of an armored Nilfgaardian horse, which looks kind of comical given his height. He's done this so he can see over the heads of the infantrymen. So Barclay Els, um, when he's greeted by the messenger, says, uh, Cornet Aubrey, I know your father. What orders do you bring? And uh, he delivers his message. The Brugian companies are... Um, in danger of a gap in support you're to withdraw your flank to golden pond but before he can finish he realizes how stupid these orders are he realizes i'm too late i came too late and barclay jokes uh don't be silly lad you didn't come too late nelfgaard came too early literally the rabble that he was fighting through was what he was warning them was coming basically yes um it took me a minute to piece that together also uh, Julia Abeta Marco um, should sound familiar. Pretty kitty. Uh, she is one of the impish cats. Yeah, she's one of the uh, impish cats that the leader of Kovir let go as part of the deal to not really help Rudania. But also kind of help Rudania. Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs> also, thank you for remembering exactly who that was and what, what kingdom that was because I was just like, I remember the term impish cats from somewhere. Yes. But I don't remember who it was. Yeah, so back... In the field surgeon tent, um, he congratulates Rusty. Congratulates his assistants on performing the first segmentectomy of the small and large intestine. Um, he says he would like to put forward for philosophical consideration the amount of time it takes to undo what was done in the blink of an eye on the battlefield. He says, "Shawnee, if you would like to have the honors of stitching up our patient," and Shawnee says, "But I've never done that before." And Rusty says, we've got to start sometime. Just remember, stitch yellow to yellow, white to white, red to red. It's sure to be fine. Um, so a segmentectomy uh, would be literally just taking a chunk, uh, the damaged chunk of the large intestine or the damaged chunk of the small intestine. It sounds like both in this case. Uh, and just removing the damaged bit and then stitching the rest <laughs> of it back together. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, and honestly, from what I know of the surgery itself, like that's not all that much different than the way we do it these days. Um, and he, in his referral of like yellow to yellow, white to white, red to red, um, would basically just be referring to like the large intestine from what I know has a slightly yellowish color to it. Uh, skin when it's being operated on tends to be a little whitish. Uh, so he's basically just saying like, just don't stitch his skin to his intestine and you should be good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good joke. Um, it, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and you imagine like how many people they're seeing minute to minute and all the people that are coming through. You have to have a sense of humor to get through that. Um, so basically just trying to survive. Basically, if you've ever seen like MASH. Um, that's basically what this tent is. And I kind of get the feeling it may be kind of a little bit inspired by that. So we cut back to Barclay Els and Cornet Aubrey. Um, and Barclay says, you know, to hell with it. Fuck the orders. We've held this line this entire time. 
We haven't budged an inch. It's not our fault that the men from Bruges didn't hold up. And now they want us. He emphasized men. Yes. The men. The men. From Bruges. Um, now they want us to fall back and support them. Pretty Kitty says, if we don't fill in the breaches, the line of the line, the whole thing will collapse from the inside and we'll all be killed. I'll go. I'll get them. Barclay says, you'll be killed before you get there. You'll die in vain. To hell with it. Get me Zoltan Chive and Yarpen Zegrin. Zoltan! Yes. Um, so the two dwarves emerge from the rabble um, that appeared to be the point of the heaviest fighting. Um, one has a bent helmet um, that has a huge gash along it, and another has a bloody bandage over his head. Um, and one of them asks, uh, hey, how are you doing, Barclay? And Barclay says, why does everyone seem to keep asking me that? So back at the field, Surge intent um, with Rusty. Rusty's getting really frustrated, and he says, sod the whole thing. Why? Why does it have to happen like this? Um, he's just lost another patient, um, and it's just very emotionally draining for him. Um, we cut back to Cornet, um, who's watching in awe as the entire Dwarven infantry formation begin to march forward, despite the fact that they were completely surrounded. And they're pushing back one of the most notorious Nilfgaardian cavalry units in existence. And they're yelling a battle song. Um, Just wait. Don't be hasty. Things will soon get tasty. The shambles will fall apart, shaken to its very heart. Unfortunately, Cornet is hit in the back, uh, which knocks him sideways. Um, But because he's in the crush, he lands on the horse next to him and is able to push back into the saddle. His sword begins to feel very weak and unwieldy in his hand. He watches in horror as an elf guardian breaks through and slices open the head of a dwarf in front of him. Cornet swings at the man and a chunk of skull and hair fly with the momentum of the blade. But several seconds later, Cornet is hit in the head and he falls again, suspended in between the sky and ground. He doesn't have time to scream or react as his head is crushed by iron-shotted hooves. So R.A.P. our short-lived friend damn cornet man they they really redshirted him <sighs> that's uh quite a way to go yep um uh for the term the crush is that's another term that kind of uh, just gets tossed out there um but the crush is usually uh in medieval warfare at least referred to um crowds uh, uh large crowds of people um behave like fluid um in in tight compact areas so if you have like more than like a thousand people in a small area, they start to behave like a fluid in that they all actually kind of clump together and push. Um, and when they push like that, you end up with like very small like gaps, like to the point where like um, Cornet um, like falls off his horse, but literally like lands on the horse next to him. There's not even enough room the first mm-hmm. time. There's not even enough room for him to like fall between them. Um, this is actually why in like, uh, fire evacuations and concerts and things like that it's very dangerous because everybody kind of pushes towards the towards the barriers or the the exits and people actually literally get crushed just as if it was like an actual flood or something like that yeah so that's pretty scary mm-hmm. um back at the field surgeon tend uh rusty is asking marty um i would love just a little bit of your magic this man's insides are just a goulash season with bits of chainmail rings Oh, fun. 
Um, I can't do anything for him while he's thrashing around like a fish being gutted. Shawnee is just feeling nauseous at this point. Like, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to faint. That stench. Oh, God, that stench. I'm going to vomit. And they just keep bringing more and more of them. Rusty says, Shawnee, I swear to God, if you make one more mistake, I'm going to smack that ginger head of yours. And Shawnee just keeps thinking, I'm going to faint. I'm going to faint. I'm going to shame myself. So we cut to the Nilfgaardian constable um, talking to Cohorn, um, saying they're breaking. Let's push hard now. They're breaking. Our victory under the white sun will be all the sweeter. And Cohorn says, strike over there at the junction of Tamaria and Redania. And um, there is this elf um, who we've met before actually his name is Balatierna and he doesn't even twitch when he's given the order and um Cohorn says you know allies you know and Cohorn says you know the elves are our allies our cohorts but I don't really trust them they're just still aliens to us if you don't remember Falatierna um is the guy that was torturing the um, messenger with like pouring maple syrup over his head and like putting him next to an anthill he's kind of metal like he's very he's very mm, metal mm-hmm. he has been watched very closely by Nilfgaard they've kept him close but they've never quite trusted him so yeah, it's interesting yeah. he's here um, he's got this big gash across his face so he's very menacing looking as well so we cut back to uh, Rusty in the field surgeon tent Rusty is saying that the guy on the table was gored by some sort of pitchfork or something um, they hit him in the atrium just nick the aorta And he survived all the way to this table this long. The girls take a look. Um, Rusty lifts the guy's eyelids and they see something very unusual. Rusty asks, like, have you ever seen anything like this? Three of them are like, yeah, actually. Um, And then they all do the Spider-Man look at each other like... (laughs) So Rusty steps outside to two men from the free company and he says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your friend has passed on. And the men are like, so it was all in vain that we carried him all this way back to the tent. Um, Rusty says, well, it's never in vain. It's truly remarkable that he survived as long as he did. And this is where we find out that he's a witcher. He has witcher eyes. And all three of the assistants, of course, have seen this before because they have all met Geralt before. Some of them had slept with Geralt. Well, two out of three. Two out of three. Rusty says, yes, he was a witcher, a mutant. That's probably why he lasted so long. Uh, The men say, besides that, he was a good bloke. He fought bravely with us in the free company. He volunteered just like the rest of us. His name was Cohen. And that should sound familiar to those of us that read Blood of Elves. That should sound familiar. He is the, well, he's the the witcher we always kind of forget about. But it's still like... He had some dialogue. He was a witcher. He was very you know. close with Siri. Very Siri close with Siri. Siri actually predicted his death. She did. She did. I had completely forgotten about that. Um, also, quick medical back. I, I know I keep doing this, but there's a lot of like actual medical things in here. Um, the aorta is basically the big, ar- the major artery that sits right above the heart. Um, literally, all of the blood in your body passes through it. Um, it's basically like the distribution hub of the blood in your body. Um, so it comes out of your out of your heart um, after it's come back from the lungs through your heart and then back out. The aorta is kind of where it all goes out from. Um, so any damage to that is basically like momentary death. 
Um, so he's he's pointing out that like this guy had a punctured aorta and he was alive when you brought him in. So somehow he survived a good 20 minutes that way. And he's like, that's not human. And then he realizes it's a witcher. So yeah, that, that, that was kind of a, a neat little aside. Yeah. Rusty also laments like, Oh, I wish I could study him more. Like I wish I could do tests on him, but there's no time. Mm. Um, we have to move on. And he's like, Iola, are you crying again? What is it about this time? And Iola says, nothing. It's nothing. I'm fine now. And so we realize that, you know, this is really hitting home for her. So we cut actually to Triss Marigold, who is with Naneke. And Triss is very much playing the victim, um, saying, I feel like I've been robbed. And Naneke says, you made a choice. You chose your destiny over that of others. You made a choice and you'll never know if it was the right one. Sorry. I, I was just myself. a dream. Um, and Tris says, I feel the judgment, the way that you look at me, the way the other priestesses look in judgment, wondering why I'm here and not out there with the girls of the temple, with Yare. But even in all of this, I'm denied a choice. I can't throw myself at saving my friends, Geralt and Yennefer, like a mad woman. I can't be off where the war is, the war that matters. And I'm denied the opportunity to stand on the hill of war again um, at this battle that's so meaningful, this time with a clear head and full assurance that I'm making the right decision. I'm told that saving individuals doesn't matter, that there's greater things at play here, that saving thousands is more important than saving several. But I feel like I've bought into a lie. And Aneke says, everyone has their own hill to stand on, Triss. We cut back to Rusty at the field surgeon tent, and there is a commotion at the entrance of the tent. There are several plate-clad knights helping another one in. One of them calls for a medic and yells at Rusty to help him, but Rusty is wrist-deep in the guts of another guy who has an arrowhead um, you know, in his intestines, and it slipped out of his forceps for the second time. So Rusty doesn't even look up at the knights who have entered. He says, you know, your your guy will have to wait his turn. I can tend to him in a moment. And the knight is like, don't you know who this guy is? This is Count Daniel Echeverry. Um, Daniel Echeverry is someone we've met before. Um, he was part of Visigard's core, um, part of the core that had abducted Geralt and Dandelion. And when they were first captured, he let them go. But then Visigard came back and said, no, absolutely not. Like, I, I need Geralt because he's the big traitor. And so he ultimately had to defer to Visigard. So, okay. But he was kind of a good guy. Yeah, I yeah. Guess. Um, and so Rusty says once again, like, you know, I'm not taking him before someone else. Um, they don't really allow peasants into this tent. Um, they only really allow higher ups, you know, the, the commanders, the people of high birth. They don't carry the peasants back on stretchers. And so, so I like to believe that there is some sort of equality, um, so for right now, this guy is going to have to wait his turn. He turns to um, his assistants and says, you know, he, he finally pulls the arrowhead out of the man and he admires it. And he turns to his assistants and says, funny how this thing is, you know, the fine work of craftsmanship. Someone put great care into making this, probably supporting their family by doing so. 
and the means by which this arrowhead sticks into this man's gut so well is probably the matter of a patent somewhere. And the knight is getting frustrated. He says, listen, you unhuman, I'll have you hanged. You'll see the count now. Um, the count grabs the knight and yells at him to get back to the fighting. The knight protests and he's like, I can't possibly leave you here. But uh, Count Daniel Atchavari reminds him that it's an order. So after the knights ride off, Rusty tells the count, um, as luck would have it, the man next in line has given up his spot a few moments ago, meaning uh, died. <laughs> um, so up on the table with you, your grace. He says, good Lord, you know, upon examining him, I don't think there's anything of this joint left. What are you hitting each other with out there to shatter joints like this? No matter, it's just like the battlefield, your grace. We're going to have to amputate. Uh, Marty slips a linden stick into the Count's mouth just as he clenches to bite down. Um, and even though the Count had put on a brave face before, um, now that his men are gone, he howls like a wolf as his limb is amputated. So we cut to a messenger arriving at the uh, the Allied Corps. Jan Natalis and all of that. He reports that all of the leaders of the Free Company are dead. Pretty Kitty, Adam Panagrad, they're all dead. Tamaria, Vizima, the Free Company are in dire straits. And so Fulta says, I think it's time to send in the reserves right now, forthwith. If the line falls, we all die. They hold out for a second as they see another messenger riding up. He's out of breath. He announces, they've breached, sir. The elves have breached the center. And Jan Natella says, Blankert, come and save us all now. That is our only hope. So we cut back to Rusty and there's a thundering of hooves outside the tent. A soldier runs in saying, flee, flee. The Nilf guardians have broken our lines. And the soldier looks around um, in the tent and is like, isn't anyone going to move? I just said Nilfgaard is coming and Rusty is just not moved at all. He says, Shawnee, get me the soft clamp. The soldier starts to run back out um, and another guy on a stretcher is like, I don't want to die. And he runs out and is immediately shot with a crossbow by someone. And there's a clamor outside. Um, Iola shoots to her feet. And two tall armored elves walk in bearing a silver lightning bolt of the Vreehead Brigade on their chest plate. Uh, the second one guts one of the men on a stretcher near the entrance, then pins down another with the end of his halberd. And the first elf says, what's this? We spend good time trying to kill men out of the battlefield and you just bring them back to life? You let them not die? And Rusty's hands are trembling um, while he's stitching up the man on the table in front of him. And he hands the needle to Marty, who continues. Marty faces the elves. Oh, sorry. Rusty faces the elves and says, Get out of my tent, you murderers. Go do your murdering out there where you're supposed to. And the first elf shoves Rusty to the ground. And a second elf moves across the tent, holding the spear end of his halberd towards a man with sheets over him. And Iola flings herself on top of the man to protect him. Uh, the elf says, get out of my way, girl, so I can kill this doin. And they rip Iola off the man and pull back the sheets. And they see a colonel bearing the silver lightning bolt of the Vreehead Brigade bandaged and resting on the cot. And they realize that this is one of their own. This is their boss. Or at and least one of their bosses. by the allied field surgeons. Rusty, so, Rusty's a real one. <laughs> 
After a moment's pause, the elves turn on their heels and walk out of the tent. Iola curls up in the corner and continues to cry. Rusty yells at two of the orderlies and says, give me a swig of hooch and don't lie. I know you little shits always have some booze. Um, Marty just silently mouths words while continuing to stitch up the man on the table. So we cut to an allied general, Blenheim Blankert. Say that three times fast. Blenheim Blankert. Um, he says, we'll draw them out on the right flank. One more thing. Shout Redania at the top of your lungs. Let our boys let King Foltis know that help and relief is coming. So we cut to Kovis Reuter. Hopefully that's right. Um, and he says, let them know that the boys are coming. The eagles, the eagles, let them know relief is coming. Uh, the Nilf guardians try to turn on their flank and face the incoming charge, but to no avail. Uh, the Redanians charge suicidally at them swiftly. Um, Kovis de Reuter d- doesn't hear anything as a crossbow bolt hits him directly in the temple. RIP to Kovis de Reuter. We barely knew thee. Yep. <laughs> um, so these are like the surprise reinforcements that mm-hmm. uh, Menno Cohorn didn't see coming because the eel stomach guy didn't go over the hill. Didn't go over the hill. So we have these reinforcements that are now hitting the right flank. That no one knew or that the, the Nilfgaardians didn't know were there. So we cut to a Nilfgaardian military academy, the one from the beginning of the chapter, and one of the students is providing an oral report of what went wrong for Marshal Cohorn and uh, the Nilfgaardian army at the Battle of Brenna. He says that um, Marshal Cohorn made a mistake in underestimating the Nordling's strength and plans. He split up the center army group and set off with the cavalry troop, and he took on a risky battle, not having at least a threefold advantage. And he neglected the reconnaissance and overlooked the Redanian army. And the professor chimes in, um, no, that's not what happened. And the book that you're quoting is absolute nonsense, and I should um, punish you for your treason, basically. Um, and he says that uh, none of this was the case, that basically it was the work of traitors. Um, he's not very specific on who these traitors are, but basically it's all sabotage. Yeah, this is this is definitely not true. Nilfgaard it's made no mistakes. Fake news. Okay? Fake news. Nilfgaard never makes mistakes. And so uh, there was a conspiracy, a conspiratorial spider web. That's why we lost. It wasn't because of any port planning. Pepe Silva was intercepting people's mail and telling people that there wasn't armies there. Like, was there a conspiracy? Maybe. Like, were there traitors? Absolutely. Was that the only thing that Nilfgaard did wrong? No. Nah. Um, anyway, but that's not what is acceptable in a Nilfgaardian military academy, I guess. Only propaganda. Um, so we cut back to Marshall Cohorn, who is very angry upon finding out that there is this other reinforcement group that's attacking his right flank. He orders his lieutenant to find the patrol that was responsible for doing this reconnaissance and put them all to death. Um, little does he know that the sergeant who was on the patrol, the eel stomach guy, is already in his last moments of life, having been trampled by the secret reserves of the Nordlings, the reserves that he had not uncovered, ironically. And we cut to Afpot of Cadewin fighting the Nilfgaardians, and he's drunk as always. Um, 
Yes. Okay. So that we, guy. we had met we had met Half Pot briefly during the Cade Wenian piece with um Nulfgaard because he had sniffed out some booze. Officer like, Booze Hound. Yeah, he had sniffed out some booze in like a Cade Wenian like unit and he like was known for just guzzling booze whenever he, he has a drinking it. problem um anyway in the, in the 1100s or so <laughs> so in he's the- part of the reinforcements that's charging forward and he's very drunk we're all gonna die um and then we cut back to cohorn who is trying to revise his plans a little bit because obviously this changes a few things um he says that they need to strike the rear lines um and sow confusion within the ranks so they're going to be just attacking the people on the rear lines, um, the people that, um, how did you describe it? Like, where are the rear lines for them? Okay. I literally, uh, so I literally had to draw a diagram out at this point. It's literally a layer cake at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you have a, the, you have the main force, the main allied force. Picture a, like a, a, a chalkboard. At the very top of the chalkboard is the main allied force. Um, you have the the first wave of the Nilfgaardian um, attackers right in front of them, pushing forward into that that main allied force. The Redanians came in off on the right mm-hmm. and swept up in, trying to push in on the right flank. Right. Um, which is a smart maneuver. The Nilfgaardian reserves that's with Field Marshal Cohorn are then going to try and attack the rear of the Redanians because they're right in front of them now. Okay. If that makes sense. So they want to do this to stir up some panic. Yes. And divert attention. Because more than likely, the Redanians think that they're in the back of, they're the last layer of the battle. Right. So they're probably not expecting to have someone attack them from behind. Yeah, so um, I mentioned at the beginning that Cohorn had held some of his um, his groups back. Mm-hmm. And so now he's taking in all of the people that are remaining and using them to charge the mm-hmm. rear lines. Yes. Um, so we cut back to Rusty, and Rusty is cutting into a man who's clawing at the table. And so Shawnee is yelling at someone who's trying to bring in someone. She says, this is a hospital. We're trying to save live men here, and you bring us a corpse. And this guy is like, but this was uh, Anselm Aubrey. And this was the father of the other guy that was killed, by the way, Cornet Aubrey. Um, so Shawnee is like, yeah, he was like Aubrey Anselm, now he's a corpse. The only reason that you brought him here in one piece is because his armor is watertight. Rusty is sawing through bone as it crunches, and finally it gives way, and the man is screaming in the background. He picks up an amputated leg and throws it on a pile with the other amputated limbs, this horror mountain of amputated limbs. I, I I had that thought... Like it, it was something that had occurred me to me earlier in the chapter. Was like they're literally like amputating by the hundreds right now. Yes. What are they doing? Because in in a real hospital, like there's a big process for like how you handle like hazardous tissue that has been removed from a person. Don't have time or resources. They for put that. it in a pile, <laughs> off in the corner. Oh, go put it in the leg pile. Ew. Sorry. <laughs> 
Um, so Rusty is like, damn it, where is Marty? This man could really do with some anesthesia. And Johnny's like, oh, Marty, she's out in the alleyway puking her guts up. I can't imagine why. Um, Rusty says, hey, uh, look, I know that you're super cynical now, um, but you're not allowed to be cynical yet. You're only allowed to become a jaded, cynical doctor after a few years of experience. Iola is like, you know, how much experience do you have, Rusty? 100 years? Because you're so cynical. I would like to point out that Rusty is doing a full amputation of a man's leg. And the anesthesiologist is not in the room. <laughs> so that man is fully awake and fully conscious and fully lucid for someone cutting off his leg. Yeah. So we cut to Yare, actually, um, who had joined the poor fucking infantry last time we heard him. Um, not in the future you know, with his grandchildren running along um, beside him. Um, so Yare is in the middle of the Vizimian infantry with the other pikemen. Um, and they've received marching orders to turn and face the rear. And Yare has ended up in the second row of the pikemen. So uh, just real quick aside from a tactic maneuvering standpoint. Um, basically that, that Redanian wave that was pushing in on the right, Yari was at the very back of that. So he was probably like, yeah, cool. I'm in the back. I don't need to worry about anything. Everybody else mm. is in the front. Um, but then they receive word that there's Nilfgaardians charging on them. So a bunch of them in the middle back had to turn around to prepare for a charge against the rear flanks. So thus Yare was in the second row all of the sudden. The leader of uh, their command, Bronobor, and he rides out in front of them and he's like, how are you all doing? And he's like, good, good, you're quietly farting. If you were doing poorly, you would be screaming and wailing. I know you were all chomping at the bit to defend and protect your Adanian brothers. But we're about to get the chance. So stand with some fucking pride. Are we proud? Melfi, who is standing next to Yare, is muttering prayers to every deity he can think of. On Yare's other side is Dulox, a seasoned soldier who is just only grumbling. The entire company is um, kind of muted at first when he asks for a response. But then he's like, I can't fucking hear you. Are you alive? And then they roar um, as loud as they can. And Bronobor says, quit chattering your teeth and farting. Over that hill lies the seven Darlanians, some of the best, most disciplined, well-armored cavalry in the world. You're not going to scare them off their horses with that. They can't be beaten, so the only thing to do is kill them. The only way you can do that is if you stand bravely. If you drop and run, you won't outrun the cavalry. They will kill you. So will you be brave? And the entire unit yells um, in response. Um, Yari is just sort of going along with everyone else. He's like, I guess if they're going to be brave, I will too. Um, so Bronobor starts correcting everyone. He says, hold your pike higher, stand up straighter. Um, he's like, you have a pike that's 21 feet long. Their sword is seven feet. You better believe that they have the same math you do. The only way you can beat them is by standing firm, you know, standing still, basically, which is nerve wracking. So just hold steady. And you have to stand shoulder to shoulder, trust the person next to you. 
Um, there, now you're starting to look like an army and not just the poor excuse for a rabble. You actually are. Um, next to him, Melfi is crying something to a holy mother while Dulax is um, finishing when he's saying mother with fucker. Um, there's always one of each. I guess, and they are just waiting. Bronobor is like, here they come. Here's the Nulf Guardians. And Yari is like, well, I guess I'm doing this. Um, so we cut to Yari writing, and he shoes a wasp away from his inkwell with his stump. Um, he writes that Field Marshal Cohorn came to nothing, that his flanking maneuver was stopped by the heroic Vizemian infantry under Voivode Bronobor, um, who was their leader paying in blood for his heroism. Um, so Voivode Brunivore paid in blood for his heroism. The noble Vizemians broke the charge of the seven Darlanians and at that moment broke the momentum of the Nilfgaardian forces, particularly on the left wing. Some of them began to flee. Some formed groups to protect themselves. Some um, of the same happened on the right flank as well, where the doggedness of the dwarves finally overcame the Nilfgaardian assault. A great cry of triumph echoes through the troops, um, and a new wind emboldens them. And Cohorn finally understands that the battle is lost. His generals run to him with a fresh horse, insisting that he flee and save his own life. But a fearless heart beat in the chest of Cohorn, um, and he pushes away the reins offered to him. He says, it will not do for me to flee like a coward from the field on which so many good men under my command have fallen for the emperor. And then we cut to him actually talking, and he's like, besides, there's nowhere to fuck off to. They're surrounding us on all sides. Uh, his men insist on taking his helmet and cloak and offer that him theirs in exchange. They say you're indispensable to the Empire, irreplaceable. We Darlanians will strike the Nordlings and draw them to us. You, meanwhile, will break through down there below the fish pond. Cohorn says, you won't get out of that alive. And he takes the reins being offered to him. And they say, it's an honor, sir. I'm a soldier of the 7th Darlanian. To me, have faith to me. So Cohorn throws our Darlanian cloak over his back and mumbles a quiet good luck and may luck be on your side. Cohorn watches until they ride into a troop, considerably outnumbering them. Their cloaks disappear into the troop and all is lost in the dust. Cohorn and some of his um, men ride off. After some distance, they're surrounded by a company that Cohorn and his men have to hack through. Um, at this point, he has thrown off the cape of heroism. He is only in it to save his own life. He's just looking to survive at this point. Um, so he left his escort behind him to continue on. He trades blows with some Brugians and he rides on towards this little bog area. Um, and one of his men points out that there's this gap and he's like ride toward that and he almost like shouts with glee but right when he does that he's like immediately struck with a crossbow as cohorn uh, rides into the bog he flies head first over the end of his horse and lands face first in the bog and suddenly he hears another sound amongst the pandemonium a sound that means certain death the hiss of fletchings of arrows so Cohorn pulls himself up out of the mud and begins to try to wade through the water as his assistant has slumped down face first into the mud next to him, a bolt fletching sticking out of his back. 
and Cohorn takes a blow to the side of his head and he tries to scream but can only sputter. His horse had kicked him in the head and cracked his helmet into his face, knocking out some teeth and slicing his tongue open. Um, he's coughing up blood, but he's thinking, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. So he stands up and pushes onwards. He hears the hiss of fletchings again, more men screaming and armor cracking open. And he realizes that these are dwarves who are chasing him. So one of um, his men, Oder de Wingolt, turns towards the marksman and begs for mercy, but then realizes that his words are not understood. He holds his sword by the blade and offers it out by the handle in an international sign of surrender, but it was not understood and they shoot him square in the chest. And Cohorn realizes um, that he can speak to them in the common speech, so he tries and he says, with a lisp, I am Marshal Cohorn. He splits blood. I surrender. He asks for mercy. And um, one of the dwarves says, What's he saying, Zoltan? And Zoltan responds, Bugger him and his chattering. Do you see the embroidery on his cloak, Monroe? A silver scorpion. So wallop the horse then, boys, for Caleb Stratton. And everyone says in a chorus, For Caleb Stratton. And a bolt hits Cohorn right in the chest, the second hits in the hip, and the third in the collarbone. And he falls over backwards. And as Marshal Cohorn is dying, he's like, who the hell is Caleb Stratton? I've never heard of a Caleb. And he thinks this as the water of the Chotla fills his lungs. Caleb Stratton was actually a dwarf that was in Zoltan Shive's company when they first encountered Geralt. So he died somewhere along the way fighting the Nilfgaardian. So this was some sort of justice in their minds for Caleb. So that, I could not remember so who Caleb was. Who Caleb was. So we cut to the field surgery tent once more and... Iola wanders outside and sees someone she knows. She calls out Yare and she walks over to him and explains, what are you doing here? And then she sees that his teeth are chattering and that he's staring through her. And she's not even sure if he can actually see her. And Yare explains, it's a battle. We held the line. It's an order. We stood in the breach. Uh, the lightly wounded were to carry the heavily wounded off. And then she sees that his hand is badly injured and bleeding. And she's like, who are you bringing? And Yari says, our commander, Voivode Bronobor, he was wounded. Iola says, come on, let's get you help. And she walks him over to the tent and sees that his face is going white as he sees the gore and blood inside and the stench. And Rusty says inside, damn it, why? Why does it always have to be like this? And she asks, who was it? And Yari says, it was Voivode Bronobor, our commander. We stood firm in the line. It was an order, like a wall. They killed Melfi. Iola says, Mr. Rusty, this boy is a friend of mine. He's wounded. And Rusty says, well, he's on his feet. And there's dying men waiting for treatment. There's no room here for any sentimental connections. And right on cue, Yari faints. And Rusty is like, okay, let's get him on the table. Um, and he examines him is like, oh, a nicely smashed arm. What's holding it on? Oh, it's his sleeve. Tourniquet, Iola, and tightly. Don't you cry. Shawnee, give me a saw. And uh, Yari wakes up briefly as they start cutting off his left arm. Um, and he immediately passes out once again. So Yare later in life writes, and thus the might of Nilfgaard uh, was crushed after the Battle of Brenna. 
Many of the important generals and colonels felt the battle. Um, afterward, Pretty Kitty and um, Jan Natalis, so the Condottieri's and the Temerians, rather than resting on their laurels and waiting for accolades, marched miles south and routed the 3rd and 8th Army, who had provided relief for Cohorn. Um, and basically nipped other possible threats in the bud. Um, this victory caused feuding kings and Adern to bury the hatchet and begin shaking hands to unite against the Nilfgaardians. And several other more minor Nordling kingdoms were able to win some decisive victories, including um, King Ethane of Sedaris, who we've heard a lot about from Dandelion but never met. Uh, a lot of people are wondering what happened to Field Marshal Cohorn to this day. There's a lot of rumors. Some say that he was killed and unrecognized and buried among the common folk. Others say that he escaped to Brokelon, um, fearing imperial retribution, but stayed in hide so stayed in hiding, visiting the battlefield every night, wailing, "Where is my men? Where is my men?" Until he hanged himself on an aspen spike on Gibbet Hill. Um, supposedly you can still hear his ghost visiting, um, give me back my legions. So good ghost story. Ooh, spooky Ooh. Halloween. And Yare puts down his writing as he hears his granddaughter yell, grandpa Yare, grandpa Yare. Grandma says enough of that layabout writing. The tea is ready. He thinks it's a good thing. The girl was more like his daughter and, um, less like that good for nothing son-in-law of his. Uh, the stump of his arm is aching. The weather's changing. It'll be winter soon. Um, the granddaughter is like, Grandpa Yare, calling at him. And he says, I'm coming, Siri. I'll be right there. His granddaughter's name Siri. I know. <clears throat> yeah, I know. <clears throat> so we cut back to the field surgery tents. And uh, they are finishing up the last of the surgeries after midnight. They exit the tent and see nothing but fires and smoke on the plain around them. And all of them are just kind of kicking back now. They drink an entire cup of vodka while Marty treated them to the last of her magic, a cheering charm usually reserved for tooth extraction. So laughing gas. <laughs> yeah, as I was, I, I, I didn't catch it when I first read it, but like I, as I was noting it, I was like, oh, it's laughing gas, but it's a magical laughing gas. <laughs> So they're all giggling through tear-soaked eyes as the moans and yells of dying men echo through the night. They can't hear them anymore. Uh, Rusty feels cheated by this magic in the vodka because rather than numbing him, it's bringing back memories. Funny how trauma does that sometimes. Mm. Um, so we learn a little bit about what happened to uh, our field surgeons next. Marty died two weeks after the battle after she began dating an officer of the Free Company, but then she begins to fool around with the Temerian general, and he doesn't take too kindly to that, and so he stabs her in the gut. And while he was hung for this, uh, the sorceress could not be saved. What the fuck? Rusty and Iola died four years later during one of the worst plagues the continent had ever seen, the Red Death, named after the ship that carried it, the Catriona Plague. Uh, that was the plague that Siri started. Yeah, yeah. Um, and despite the fact that all of the physicians in the area had fled, Rusty and Iola stayed to help those in need, uh, but they fell ill. Rusty died in Iola's arms, um, and Iola died four days later alone. And Shawnee died 72 years later, um, and she died as the dean of the 
Medical Center at Oxenford after a long, illustrious career. And her students remembered her by her famous joke. So red to red, yellow to yellow, white to white, and it's sure to be fine. And no one notices, well, almost no one notices that every time she says that, she wipes a tear from her eye. So the three sit around the golden pond as the frogs croak and the cicadas sing. Marty and Iola giggle through tears as Rusty wonders aloud, I wonder who won? And Marty, laughing, says, Rusty, in your shoes, who won is the last thing I would be worried about. And that's the end of Chapter 8 of Lady of the Lake. And scene. <laughs> a somber way to end yeah. our chapter. Yeah, it, that one is, uh, it, it gets pretty heavy. Um, this was a, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty somber one. But it, it is a really, really interesting chapter. And like like I said, it's it's super engaging and you're super connected and super invested. We've never met Rusty before. By the end of the chapter, I'm exceedingly like attached to him as a character. Yeah, because Anze is able to give each character, and not every character, but especially Rusty, you feel like he's a three-dimensional character. You understand his motivations, mm-hmm. his, you know, his flaws, you know, his um, his compassion really for helping people. You don't do this because, you know, you don't care. Like he, he is doing so much and he realizes he can't help everybody, but he wants to help who he can in this moment. He cares too much is the problem. Yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. And and I think it's also really interesting because it, it shows how trauma bonds people. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were kind of strangers to each other at the top of this. Yep. Like, yep. Rusty, Shawnee, Marty, and Iola didn't know each other. But through this experience, everything changes. Mm-hmm. They're suddenly mm-hmm. very close. And yep. um, I think it was beautiful to add it, add that little vignette at the end where we find out what happened, but then we get that final little moment between all of them. I thought that was really powerful. Honestly, beautiful. Um, it, yeah, it just, it's very touching. And like, there's, there's so much like shared, like caring between each other that like, it, the, yeah, like you can tell by the end of it that the only reason like that any of them pulled through it was because of the others, um, because they were all there to help support each other kind of thing. And that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. It was hard not to cry a little bit when reading this chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. There was definitely some tears shed in different different spots. Probably should have been some tears shed in different spots. Um, like uh, the messenger there, uh, I felt really bad for him, Cornet Aubrey. Um, mostly because we he, we did kind of like him. Like he he was built up as a, something of a character, and then then killed off, which is which is interesting because Ansei doesn't usually kill off characters too too readily like that, but. Yeah, I think that he wanted to give us a lot of grounding in this chapter. And yeah. he realized that so many people were going to die that not every narrator could make it. So yeah, these yeah. people that he built up for a little bit, lots of them died. And, yeah. and I think it was about half lived and half died, which is probably pretty realistic given the death toll in this battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was actually really interesting that I felt a little bad for Marshall Cohorn in the end. 
Yeah. Um, Once again, Anse creates bad guys that we relate, that we almost root for a little bit. I mean, even though I know that Marshall Cohorn was guilty of, you know, genocide, basically, you know, he invaded Adern. Like, a lot of what Nilfgaard did can only be described as war crimes. Yeah. But then at the end, you know, we are relegated to these very human instincts of wanting to survive. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, when he's like at the um, other side of Zoltan Chive's crossbow, you're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe maybe he'll get get taken alive. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he should survive, you know, And and it gets into that territory where, you know, not everyone is just you know one thing or another like there's all these shades of gray there's all these nuances and yes there there are always going to be people that are you know beyond redemption but i think that really plays with this is like you know one like who is this war for who is it benefiting and two like are there any real winners here yeah yep one of the things that like is kind of a strong word, but one of the things that I really, I guess, appreciated might be a better word for it about this chapter was like um, seeing the amount of like not because like dead people in a battle are easy to write off. Injured people coming back from a battle like permanently injured are much harder to write off. Um, so we see a lot more characterization and a lot more focus on like, you know, the general who got his foot amputated, the, you know, the Duke who's, you know, uh, now missing a chunk of his colon, um, you know, the, the, you know, Yare who's missing his left arm kind of thing. Like, uh, those people are much harder to just say, oh yeah, they're, they're the dead people of the battle and it's all sad and like. You know, oh, yep, but that's war. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's much harder to write off someone who's still there, basically. Yeah, and I think that in one way, it's probably easier to die on the battlefield because everyone who's left is just left with a lot of survivor's guilt and mm-hmm. a lot of reminders of what happened. Yeah, yep. It's not just, you know, being physically crippled. Mm-hmm. It's the emotional crippling as well. And it seems like, you know people like Yari are okay, like more or less, you know, unscathed. I mean, yes, he lost a limb. Like, yes, he has those memories to contend with, but ultimately he was able to find happiness in the end. I I don't know if that describes every single veteran's experience. Yeah. um, It's, (laughs) um, I was going to say, I I think it there was a really good depiction of like just what he was. There was really good characterization and really good depiction of like what he was experiencing um, during that scene where he's just where Iola was coming up to him um, and was just trying to talk to him. And he's just like he's just rambling. Yes. Um, I mean, that's PTSD. It, yeah. I mean, it was he was in shock. shock. Yeah. Um, it was that like, yeah, he was currently in shock. Um, and then once he recovers and moves out of the shock phase, he then will is you can already see the cognitive processing that's occurring in his brain when he's talking about like just his casual mentioning of like oh, they killed Milfe, um, wh- who was like the closest thing to a friend that he had that was there with him. Um, so like, mm-hmm. yeah, like he's he's probably got a lot of that. And we do see a lot of like end result of him. 
which is that things are good for him. We don't see a lot of the in-between arc. Um, so I'm sure there's there's a lot of like unpacking and a lot of like processing and it seems like he's been writing for a while and maybe there's a reason he's been writing for a while and maybe there's a reason he felt the need to document all of these things um well i don't think that ever really escapes you like when you're involved in an experience like that i Mm. mean like i know that your grandfather also fought in world war ii but i know my grandfather fought in um the battle of the bulge like Mm -hmm. in bastogne during world war Two, and like that never escaped his memory like that's the sort of thing that you never forget and i think that um it's kind of the same for yare this is a part of his life that he's always going to remember always going to be with him physically and emotionally mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and like i said I, I think the writing may have also been a lot of just him processing as well i think it might be a good time to take a quick pause for a nightcap uh if you're game for one sounds good okay so tonight, uh, I guess we just didn't have enough war talk, but um, this this beer is a is a little bit different. Um, I was a little worried that this might be a little too much and a little too on the nose. Um, but the name of this beer is the Fallen, um, and it is brewed by Funk Brewing Company in Pittstown, Pennsylvania. This beer is it's a West Coast IPA, um, but it's specifically uh, in memory of. Um, Basically, a bunch of people who have died in in the United States Armed Forces, for lack of a better description. Over a period of time, I don't know if there was anything linking them, um, but I know that this is a, like, I think this these were all people that uh, were known by the brewers, um, friends and family, etc. Um, and there, there's a list of probably 50 names on the front of it. Mm. Um, but uh, there, it, it's, I think it's kind of an emporium type type of beer and one of the you know one of the notable things is that like each one of them are in their early 20s or so there's some there's definitely some from vietnam in here um it's and one of the interesting things is you can look at the they're all there's dates on all of them as well um and you can kind of piece together you know what what it was let's see here's specialist four raymond perez born 1947 died 1967 there's Staff Sergeant Curtis A. Oaks, born 1981, killed 2010. Um, Specialist Ronnie Williams, uh, born 1979, killed 2005. Um, yeah, so I, I think a lot of this was, like I said, in in honor of, of people that they that the brewers knew. It's a West Coast style IPA. <laughs> uh, it is rated at 50 IBU, um, and it is 6% ABV. Um, bitterness and intense citrus and tropical flavors from the combination of Amarillo, Cent- Centennial, Azaka, and Columbus. Um, yeah, I, I'd be interested to know a little bit more as to like what the inspiration for the the specific inspiration, the the specific thing they had in common, other than the fact that they're all KIA. Um, so. Uh, I guess nothing left to do but open it and sniff it and try it. Yeah, this is a very serious nightcap. Um, yeah, I was a little worried that that might be the case, but... But that's that's okay. I think that uh, covering war always reminds us to remember those who, you know, laid down their lives, and it's good to honor them and remember that a lot of times they were very young people mm-hmm. and, like, mm-hmm. 
maybe yep. even younger than us. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. kind of crazy to think about. Yep. The, yeah. the, the people like Yare, like how old is Yare? Like 17? <laughs> I don't think he's even that old. You know, um, it, it just, I think it's great that we were given his perspective because like often it's those kids, you know, mm-hmm. kids that are sent to war and, you know, you have this romantic notion of what war is and then... No, it's it's seventeen year olds like shooting at each other usually. So yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, you know, it, it's they, you know, I I kind of felt that this was a good one though to to fit because you know we we were kind of finished off you know seeing the end of a lot of the characters that we we've kind of come across at this mm-hmm. point and um it's always good to you know remember that there are real people out there sometimes that that are that affected by things like this. So. What is fiction if not a mirror? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, um, unless you're academia and you don't believe that genre is reflective of the human experience, but that's only something that I've learned recently from uh, my academic friends. Trevor, I know you're out there listening. No beer on my face, but beer on my pants. Well, you know, I think it's probably <laughs> I don't know. better to not have it in your eyes. I don't know which direction we're counting that, um, but I'm counting that one as a slight win at least. So <laughs> uh, it is just a pretty strong, straightforward, uh, like, citra smell. Um, definitely some of the Amarillo hops definitely come through. I think this I was... I like the citrusy notes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That'd be... Yeah, there's a lot of citra hops. In it. I think it was dry hopped with citra. It smells like pineapple. Yeah, yep. Very fruity, which which is interesting for a serious beer, but um, it might be a little bit more serious on the taste. Um, shall we give it a taste, though? Yeah, sounds good. Uh, no clink tonight because filthy cans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that is what it is. Yep, <laughs> clink. <laughs> pour one out. Pour yeah, pour one out. I say that in all seriousness. I don't joke about that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Except when it's like, you know, funny, but this is not funny. I mean, yeah, we're talking about fictional characters that we have emotional attachments to. So I guess we can jokingly say pour one out, but also, you know, pour one out for the fallen. So cheers. Cheers. Hmm. So, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of a lot of citrusy notes on the very, very front. Um, where it gives away to kind of a classic IPA taste in the middle. Little floral, almost. Little, yeah, a little floral in the middle. I think that might be the uh, as the Azaka uh, and Columbus hops. Um, interestingly, very malty on the on the tail. Um, kind of a classic, probably two two row malt um, on the on the tail end there. Um, not too strong, not too bitey. No, no, it's 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 very balanced. It's it's very well rounded. Actually, is probably a good way to describe it because it hits like a lot of big IPA notes um, without being uninteresting. So, yeah, um, I would recommend this one definitely. Yeah, it's a little more somber, but um, I yeah, th- I definitely think that the the tasting notes are very nice for an IPA. It's got a nice blend of hops. Yeah, it's got it's definitely got just a very classic IPA taste with some some interesting floral notes on the on the nose. And I think that's kind of the best way to describe it. But um shall we move into our last call, Saved Rounds Alibis? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. What did you think of war? It's kind of a broad question, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Army had a half day today, mother. <laughs> <laughs> 
like I said, I, I really enjoyed the narrative of this and how it was situated because, you know, we open with, um, we move through it chronologically, but it's very interesting how he does it. Like we start at an eagle's eye view, like there's this many troops, like there's 46,000 elf guardians, 12,000 infantry. And it's a little bit easy to kind of disconnect ourselves from that because it's like mm, reading a mm-hmm. Wikipedia article. It's like, yes, I know that there are people at battle and it's very hard to like think about that number of people. Mm-hmm. I I brought up the concept uh, like way, way back in like the first book of the monkey sphere mm-hmm. um, that the idea is that like you have one monkey, you name him like Pooh Flinger. He's like your best friend. You're super attached to him. Yeah. Then you have like two monkeys. You're super attached to both of them. You name it Pooflinger one and like nose picker two. Um, And then you have four monkeys and you kind of start to care a little bit less about the fourth monkey. Um, But then you get to like a hundred monkeys and you're like, I really, there's only like one or two of them that I really like. Um, But then you move to like, a hundred thousand monkeys and there's no possible way that you can conceptualize of loving each one of them because there's just too many of them. Um, and the same thing happens to humans on a larger scale that like there is an actual threshold of like numbers of the maximum amount of people that a human can care about. Um, and this kind of plays with that idea that like somebody talks about like, Oh yeah, there's 46, you know, 80,000 people involved in this battle and 20,000 people died. Um, and you're just kind of like, Ah, yeah, that sucks for those guys. Like, um, but because you're not attached to because you're not attached to each one of them individually, mm-hmm. um, it kind of loses its gravity. That's actually one of the things that a lot of memorial type situations, like memorial walls, memorial beers, um, try to focus on is giving names to those, um, giving names to the people, and by doing so, it it attaches a a, a care and an empathy towards. Uh, to the viewer. Yeah. So I think it's good that we have that understanding of how many people are there. Cause it gives mm. us an idea of the scope. Like we needed to understand um, who's there first, because it's mm-hmm. been a while since we thought about all of this war stuff. But then instead of like going into this battle happened this way and this company marched on this, and there is some of that, but we, we get these vignettes of people on the field. And so some of these people are ones that we've met before. Some of them like Milo Vanderbeck or Rusty or people that we're just meeting. And they have different levels of, you know, embellishment. And Anse spends a lot of time with certain people. But it gives us a grounding in the battle. Like, it gives us an understanding of what the feeling is on the ground. Like, we know how it feels because we're seeing it through the eyes of people mm-hmm. that are experiencing it from different angles. And and they're people that we can relate to because they have dynamic motivations and they have depth and they have, like, relatability in terms of like their who they are and their flaws and their existence um which really draws you in and you look at any good like any good war movie for lack of a better description um and that's what people what that's what draws people back there's a reason like a lot of the like chuck norris type war movies don't really hold a lot of weight um you know you compare like band of brothers to like delta force 18 like the delta forcing um (laughs) and like like 
what really draws people in is is the relatability of the characters, the human drama, the the perspective granted by the people living the experience. Um, that's why uh, the Rambo series is a fantastic example of that because the first one is very very good, um, and it's well. It's pretty good, um, but it's it's you know it's it's got perspective, it's got relatable characters, it's well fleshed out. But then eventually, towards like the third or fourth or fifth one, it kind of trickles off into like, well, maybe he could just shoot a bunch of guys a whole bunch of times, and you know we'll we'll get them. Yeah, like I think we need to have an understanding of the human experiences, and I don't mean human in an exclusionary way. I mean the human, halfling, well, yeah. <laughs> dwarf, um, elf. You can't leave out, out our dwarf friends. We we have a lot of experiences on the battlefield, and I, I think that is why we care so much about the outcome. After like not really being sure if we want to delve back into this war stuff, it is a little surprising to care so much about these people. Like, you know, we feel a real sense of danger when Rusty is confronted by the mm, elves mm-hmm. of the Freehead Brigade. We're like, oh, this guy could actually die. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that that is a um, triumph of writing, really. Mm-hmm. Like, it really he, is. he draws us back in by telling these really well-crafted stories and fleshing out characters. And I think that's helped by introducing some people we've already known a little bit mm-hmm. like we we did know Iola we did know Shawnee and um we did know Marty a little bit and we knew people like Yare um so I don't think that he's just introducing people that we've already met just for kicks and giggles like it makes sense why these people are here yeah which yep. is important um and I think that there is a lot of value in having those characters we've met before because we're like oh, yeah, I recognize them. I recognize that person. Like, it feels like things are coming together. It doesn't feel like a lot of new concepts are being introduced. It it adds grounding because you, you already care about these characters. You're already invested in them to some extent. You've been exposed to them before. They don't feel cheap and written in specifically for this chapter. There's a couple of characters that are introduced in this chapter, but... Um, Anse does a really great job of fleshing them out and, and making us care about them. But it does also add weight to the experience. It adds weight and gravity to mm. what is occurring. Um, because like you also look at like these are all people from very different ends of the world. You know, Shawnee is from a, a college in Oxenfurt. Um Iola is from a temple. Um Marty is from a sorcery school. Yeah, Marty's a sorcerer. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it kind of shows the impact that all of these realms of 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 existence of of the experience are being drawn upon, Um, and and that's kind of like one of the big themes in war is that it kind of affects everybody. Um, Everybody is drawn into it in some way, Um, and it kind of this having these random characters that seem to be none, not connected in any way involved in this. And we can see their experience is a really fantastic, like storytelling. Yeah. And there, there is a unity in this shared struggle. Um, and, and it's very interesting. One thing we didn't recap in the summary is that, uh, Julia Abeta Marco, pretty kitty did survive. And many years later, she was describing what happened. Um, and like, 
why the Nilfgaardians fell. And she described it as like, you know, we were both very brave, but we managed to be brave a second longer. And we both were very struck by that line because it was, you know, in a lot of ways, we're taught to dehumanize the enemy. But then you are really struck by the idea that people on both sides are just fighting this, you know, are thrust into the situation where there's no winning. And so I think that's the tragedy of this war is that so many people had their lives lost, altered completely um, due to a war um, waged by someone who was kind of greedy for more land. I mean, at the end of the day, that's Nilfgaard's motive in all of this. And when you're a soldier, you're just fighting to survive. Like you're getting paid a pittance and for what? To die? To, to make to... some noble somewhere <laughs> somewhere else much more rich? Right. Yeah. Right. So in a lot of ways, we see the tragedy in both sides of this war because the Nilfgaardians aren't all evil, although they certainly look evil when they're standing up on that hill and they're all black outfit. You know, it's pretty menacing, but... We are reminded that there are human beings and um, not just human beings, but, you know, all <laughs> <laughs> beings that need deserve existence. Yes, there there are people that are just trying to survive. And that's what we're all relegated to in, in the end. And I think that's probably one of the, the relatable themes that's brought up in this chapter. Um, because we, we see, you know, Cohorn, uh, you know, who is the field marshal of Nilfgaard. So field marshal, uh, real quick, is actually a, a positional term for basically the officer who is most in command of the entire field of battle, basically. Yes, and I, I played fast and loose with the terms because um, uh, I didn't know exactly he, <laughs> what he He kind of did, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, it, it, it yeah. Um, th- I was going to say there's, there's like two or three in here that there are. So the term commander, um, is both a rank and also like a position. Mm-hmm. Um, field marshal is a, is a position. Um, and in terms of like a unit of size, like a company is kind of a umbrella term of like just a number of like men. Um, but yes. yeah, I, all of the other ones kind of swish around a little bit and it's not really super important. Um, as long as you kind of have a bearing of an idea of like how many people are being involved here. Um, that's really all it kind of came down to. Um, it's very interesting how these little moments, and I think this was one of the, the points he's making in telling these stories. All of these little moments turn the tide for mm-hmm. the North. Like the idea that this dwarven company and the condot- the condottieri, which are these mercenaries, are like fighting off bands of Nilfgaardians, mm-hmm. like single-handedly. Yeah. Like they're surrounded on all sides and they manage to completely defeat the enemy, which is just astounding. Um, there's all of these little mistakes that add up to a victory for the other side. Like, the um, scout not going up the hill to see that there were reinforcements. Well, uh, to quote the great John Madden, the team that generally makes the least amount of mistakes are, are going to win the football game. Um, 
and as as stupid and and cringy as that that statement is, it, it's kind of true in a lot of things in life. That like a lot of it comes down to just who made fewer mistakes. I really really love that quote um, about we were just brave a little bit a minute longer um, because a lot of times like crisis situations come down to just a just going just a little bit further. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like you know. Even if you have all the advantages in the world, which Nilfgaard seemed to do, you can mm-hmm. still overlook things. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you can still, you know, make mistakes. And I think this, this showed us Nilfgaard is not invincible. And, you know, even an invincible quote unquote enemy can be vanquished with a little bit of luck and prior planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just very interesting. Um by seeing all these moments, we see how it can add up to Nilfgaard being vanquished. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is kind of grounded in uh, in some reality um, in in warfare. Um, permit me to to kind of have a history slight history nerd moment here. Um, there's a really good example. I can't remember specifically like what battle it was. Um, I want to say it was like World War One. Um, there was a bunch of mercenaries uh, that were hired um, by one of the Axis powers, I want to say. Um, I know Axis isn't quite the right term for the for World War One, but anyways. Um, they had, basically they had hired an, an, a, like several hundred thousand Islamic mercenaries. Mm. Um, and they were looking to take on they were looking to siege a city um they outnumbered the the occupying force like five to one kind of thing something ridiculous um one of the things that they overlooked was the fact that um so early muskets um would create bullet pouches um rather than like bullet bullets (laughs) um so it was basically a little piece of paper, uh, like fuse paper, um, that they'd pack black powder on the back end of and a musket ball on the front. Um, they'd make a wad, kind of like a joint, um, out of it. Um, and then they'd take the whole wad and stuff it down the barrel of the musket. Um, this kept it all handy and self-contained and made it really easy and quick to reload. Problem was uh, water. Um, if that got wet, the whole thing was worthless. Worthless. So the way they got around that was coating it with grease. Coating it with grease kept it waterproof. Problem came when they used pig grease. They used bacon grease. Um, so in order to get this this wad to work, you had to bite off and tear an end of it um, to expose the black powder before you stuffed it down the tube. They hired a, like hundreds of thousands of Islamic mercenaries and they coated the bullet pouches I see a problem, yeah. with bacon grease. Yep. Yes. So, <laughs> so yeah. the, the issue being that then the mercenaries didn't want to open the pouches because it was bacon grease and it was against their religion to, to consume it. Um, so, yeah, they, they wouldn't fire their guns, basically, or they, they were starting to do it like by hand, you know, the old-fashioned way and just dumping powder in and stuffing a ball down. Um, which gave them a huge disadvantage, and they were thoroughly destroyed, basically. Yeah, and so these these tiny details can really win a battle in a decisive way, and we see how that really benefited the northern side in this 
mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Triss because um, we do get a little aside with her when she's talking to Mother Naneke and she seems to be really regretting not being on, you know, the front lines of this war as she was at Sodden. And it seems like, you know, Naneke is telling her she made this choice and her choice was to side with the Lodge and she's feeling a lot of guilt about that. As she should. Um, and, and I know that we often give Triss a very hard time, but, you know. She can deal. Okay. It, it is very interesting that we're seeing this perspective of the sidelines as well because, you know, sorcerer, sorcerers and sorceresses were very involved at Sodden and Triss, you know, was one of the presumed dead of the hill. So it's very different this time. Like this battle is very yeah. different. Yeah, it, it is. It is very different um, for, for many, for a couple of reasons as well. Um, so in in this um, in this world, sorcerers and sorceresses have kind of taken the realm of, or taken the role of uh, like the big like siege engines, for lack of a better word. Like mm-hmm. so, real medieval uh, armies would have like trebuchets or like ballistas and things like that. Um, they'd have them in the back of the the back of the army, like flinging rocks into you know the the enemy infantry. Um, Instead, up to this point, um, in this world, uh, that's been sorcerers and sorceresses, like lobbing fireballs into, you know, into the infantry kind of thing. Um, this battle is completely devoid of sorcerers and sorceresses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically just a bunch of infantrymen and cavalry and a couple of archers. We actually don't really see much archery in this other than the dwarves the and the crossbows. Yeah. We we see some um, volleys on the opening. Yeah, but the, that's it's weird actually. Now that I think about it, because that they don't that don't really ever come back. Um, but I mean, like I, I guess that kind of makes sense once once the actual main battle breaks out. Um, archers aren't really going to fire into the big rabble because like there's just as much a likelihood that you're going to hit one of your own men as you are going to hit somebody else. Um, so I guess it makes sense that we don't really he- see or hear much from them. But like it is kind of an interesting thing that like there's no there's no greater like artillery support for lack of a better mm-hmm. description. Um and I think that's that's definitely very intentional on the the side of the lodge. Um and so it's kind of weird to see Triss being like, Yeah, I I'm just sitting here on the sideline, like, this kind of sucks. Yeah, and I and I think Triss is trying to. Um, she's feeling very guilty, and she's trying to absolve herself a little bit because mm-hmm. you know not only has she kind of allying with the lodge has um, cost her a lot. Like it's it was a big decision that resulted in her not really being the good guy in this, and yeah, like yep. you know as a result, she has not helped. She chose not to help Yennefer when she had the opportunity to. Um, she is not able to help Geralt or Ciri, um, and she finally has not helped in this big decisive war against Nilfgaard. And so, also, she was contributing to the Lodge's machinations and plotting to put this battle into motion. Mm-hmm. 
And I do think that was mostly Philippa because we know how Philippa is. Yup, we do. But, you know, we have to think about the bystanders as well. Mm -hmm. Like, who is allowing this to happen? Did anyone speak up? Did anyone, like, challenge Philippa? And I I don't know. I, I really... And maybe maybe we will a little later in the book, but like I really do wish we could get a little bit more of like an explanation um, as to how that went down amongst the lodge. Um, I kind of get the feeling we're not really going to see any more of the lodge uh, in the rest of the book, but maybe we will. Um, but like we do, kind of get that little aside with like the the little like uh, with Milva giving uh, Milva no. Mene? Nemu. <laughs> uh, giving the, the report, um, basically saying like, yeah, the lodge allowed it to happen so that the, you know, the leaders of the world would learn from their mistakes. Um, Just let them kill each other and yeah, then they'll, they'll, that'll work. Let them, let them stick the fork in the electrical socket. They'll only do it once. Um, yeah, like I, I just I really do wish I could have seen a little bit more of like that, but maybe maybe we will. Um, but I kind of get the feeling we won't. Um, and obviously, Tris was involved in the decision in some way and feels some sort of way about it. But like, we're only kind of getting it third party. Yeah, I think that is intentional. But I also think it's interesting that we get all this propaganda like interspersed here. Like, you know, Nilfgaard wants to make it seem like they didn't make any mistakes like Marshall Cohen yeah. was great um he just you know was sucked up into a conspiracy and all these people were betraying him and that's why we didn't discover those reinforcements and so you're bad for thinking that Nilfgaard could ever make any mistakes I mean you know being shitty at your job in that regard kind of was a betrayal so I mean it's not technically wrong. And then meanwhile, like, you know, sorcerers and sorceresses are learning that uh, the Lodge was the great savior of mankind. Like, you yeah. know, holy yeah. mother Philippa. It's a little weird to <laughs> Pray hear for her us. venerated <laughs> in that way. Like, I feel yeah. like there are prayer candles with Philippa on it. And it's, it's strange to think of it that way. So we see yeah. that, like, these different corners of the world and depending on where you are, it's written differently. It's, it is a really good illustration uh, because we as the 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 reader can are omniscient and can see everything we do see the dichotomy between the two and how striking it is like oh yeah well this is obviously propaganda it's only obviously propaganda when you can see both sides clearly and perfectly and when you're not being taught this yourself exactly exactly I think it's interesting what we're seeing and when, because we we can get a full picture of what's being taught in the aftermath of Mm -hmm. this battle as well um, I think that he's very, Anse is always very concerned with memory and how, not just how the event went, but how we remember it. Um, yes. Uh, which is a really important, really interesting thing to play with as a, as a writer. Um, because it, it is, you know, has been shown to be so unreliable, um, and, and completely influenced by the victor. So like. And yeah, and and I think that because Nilfgaard has been so successful in its invasion, I, and they still have a lot of land, they can go back and sort of lick their wounds and be like, you know, actually, we were good. It was just that other people were bad, and that's why we didn't win. Uh, meanwhile, the North can be like, we were heroes, and we definitely didn't um, engage in any pogroms or putting to death, like, non-humans. 
Yeah, and uh, and the lodge definitely didn't allow all of this to happen. The lodge was actually good for allowing <laughs> more to happen. It, it was good for allowing 30,000 people to just die for no real reason. And really, every single side was out for their own gain and yeah, had yep. their own agendas. So I think that that memory question, like we're even getting that a little with Yare and how he's remembering it. Mm-hmm. And he's seeing it from one particular angle. There's, and like you, you can either even kind of pick it up in his writing a little bit the like the language choice that he has is that like you know the heroic infantrymen uh, routed the yeah, the the North Guardian. self serving oh yeah <laughs> i mean uh, no one can fault him it was his he was heroic he was. i and mean yeah. it sounds like he kind of was he like stood there yeah. i mean like they were they were told to hold the line and they did and yeah. like they they accomplished that but it's also interesting because it seems like he can see it from more than one side. He, mm, he even mm. like says Marshall Cohorn was heroic in a way. So. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he he did leave that in there, and I yeah, I, I think Yare at least even early enough at that point in his life, um, but much more so later in his life is experienced enough to read all of the sides and read all of the reports and understand that he has a bias and is going to have a bias. But I think also he's going to be a little proud of his own unit and what he did. Like, yeah, that's fair. He and should that's be proud fair. Of he it. should be. He lost a damn arm. <laughs> like, let's talk a little bit about Cohen for a second. Mm. Um, I think it was very interesting that we see Cohen again, mm-hmm. um, especially at the beginning of Blood of Elves. You know, the Witchers were giving Triss a really hard time for her wanting them to be involved in current events in the war and like. You know, saying that's not really a witcher's work. And at the end, uh, Triss is safe in the temple. And mm, Cohen mm. is one of the volunteers who you know, yeah. sacrificed his life. And so I think it's a little ironic, but also just really interesting because we get this like aha moment from all of the women who knew him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Shawnee, Iola. Um, yeah. You know, Marty had all encountered Geralt so when they see Cohen it's kind of amazing I mean it's, yeah. it's kind of like finding a, a really rare animal like in a place that you would never expect to see them yeah yep um, it just shows that they're very very odd um, very odd associates here like mm-hmm. strange bedfellows almost yeah yeah that's a good way to put it honestly um, I think and and I think this was kind of a little interesting kind of like it was definitely very intentional in that like a kind of like it's kind of like hearing like something bad happened to like one of your exes mm-hmm. um, that like even though maybe it's not necessarily directly someone you care about like it's still kind of weird because it's there's a close association there and mm-hmm. there there is definitely always going to be some sort of like memory tied to it or that person um and so like it, it, you know hearing about tragedy befalling someone like that is still gonna kind of have an effect and an impact kind of thing um that like e- even though it wasn't Geralt, like it still kind of hit that same that same like oxytocin button that kind of like brought brought <laughs> yeah. back the like the feelings and the memories um because there's so few of them i think is the main thing were you surprised that the North won the war? 
So there was a lot of like foreshadowing and a lot of spoilers um, to the fact that they were going to win the war. Uh, so I wasn't really surprised. I just didn't know how or how clean it was going to be, if that makes sense. Um, I, you know, like I, I didn't know how they were going to pull it off. If like what was going to happen, that would be the thing that would let them win. Um, or if they did just kind of outright win it in a, you know, a, in a series of battles, like if they were just going to kind of barely pull through kind of thing. Um, and it seems like it was a little bit of both, honestly. Um, they kind of had a big miraculous come behind, come from behind. Um, but then it also kind of like, they also still took some pretty heavy losses and like a good portion of the North was just, you know, raised to the ground. Like, so yeah, yeah, it was a little bit, a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah, and and they were very much posed as the underdogs here, so it was sort of satisfying to see them come back. But again, it wasn't really a super satisfying victory given how many people died. And and I think that's that's definitely one of the main themes of this chapter too is just the hollowness of like any sort of like victory mm-hmm. to some extent, um, the hollowness of a, of a war victory, um, in that like there's just going to be a bunch of people that are going to die one way or another. Um, and like, if that, if that sheer number of people died, is it really a win? Like in any way, like those people are gone. And what was it for? Yeah. What is it good for? (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Yep. Um, I, there is one, one point that I did want to bring up, uh, kind of going back to seeing like, uh, Cohen, um, in the the field surgeon tent, and I, I had mentioned this to you before. Um, seeing the end of the war, I was really glad to see that the party didn't get dragged back into it. Yeah. Um, not because I didn't want to see that happen, but also like it's mostly because like we've kind of realized that like that's not really the party's talent. That's not really where they're good. All of them are just very capable, like individual, like. Um, one-on-one type combat, like large-scale, like industrialized, like trench-style warfare, is not something that any of them are really good at. Maybe K here, maybe. Yeah. In that he's mm-hmm. experienced, probably experienced it. Well, they've um, got they've got other things to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like you see, Geralt, they're all very, they're all very like light quick nimble characters that don't do well to just trading blows on a battlefield um we saw a little bit of that in uh baptism of fire with Geralt fighting on the bridge um and he did okay at that but i think it was only because it was a very small scale skirmish um seeing cohen in this is a good example as to why this isn't really their bag and isn't really yeah. what they're good at and you had brought up like that was kind of what they were trying to explain to Triss and, you know, get through to her um, in the scene where she's talking to them and saying, like, you guys should get involved in the war. Like, you guys should be yeah. participating. You guys should be helping. Um, and, like, I think all of them know, like, we're not good at, like, heavy industrialized warfare. <laughs> like, that's not what we're designed for. That Like, they are literally designed, and that is not what they're designed for. They're designed for nimbility. Nimbility to be nimble to be nimble (laughs) nimbility Um, making up new words every night Um, they're designed for agility 
and um, quickness of movement and mm. to be unencumbered. Um, all of those things are completely contrary to medieval plate carrier, plate worn armor. I think it would have cheapened it a lot if the party had just showed up. It that too. It, it would have been like, I mean, I hate to criticize this uh, because I feel like I'll bring fanboys out. Um, I know where you're going with this. Like, Go for it. It sort of feels like end game where like every single person is like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wait. Where no, I thought you were going to Lord of the Rings. Both of both of both of your both of those examples are are good for where where you're going with this though. Go okay, ahead. so I feel like it would be sort of like an end game where everyone's coming out of the like little portals, mm-hmm. um, where it's like, oh yeah, and Geralt's here, and for and, whatever reason, <laughs> and Jennifer and Vilcafords for some reason, and Ciri's here as well, and unicorns, and the Red Rider, and Sonic the Hedgehog, <laughs> <laughs> and Ash from Pokemon. <laughs> And Goku from Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> like, every character you've ever heard of is here. I mean, like, that would just cheapen it because, yeah. like, what, make, what is good about having characters we've heard of before is that it makes sense that they're here. Yes. Like, and the only reason it makes sense in... I'm going to defend Endgame a little bit because I don't feel like that scene was super cheap. It was a little bit of heavy fan service, but they the reason it doesn't feel completely cheap in that the way that it would here is because they spent like 15 movies explaining why it wouldn't be cheap for them to show up here. Yeah, <laughs> like, I get it. But it's like they also had like all of the like women heroes like, okay, yeah, you yeah. know, merge like, let's go. Girl squad. <laughs> like, and, and if like, I don't, I don't like as a woman that didn't feel like Oh wow! Amazing! I Yay. represented. <laughs> like it just felt like okay, you guys got some women here. Like yeah. cool. It just felt like Shania Twain should be playing in the background. <laughs> Let's um, go, girls. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So that's, it, yeah, that's it, neither here nor there. But um, I just feel like there are some characters that shouldn't show up here. Like there yeah, are some people yep. that are involved in their own thing and like they don't need to be brought into this yeah they are literally like half a continent away like they're they're already involved in their own survival story like they're already doing their own thing they have their own missions their own motivations none of them align with being a part of this battle so yes um lord of the rings is another good example of kind of making that work in that it, the whole thing does culminate in that big battle that mm-hmm. all of the main characters are in, involved in and a part of um and so like it spends three books explaining as to why it makes sense that they would be there yeah and and like i feel like lord of the rings makes sense as well because like you are leading up to that big mm-hmm. battle versus evil so yeah. i i get that it's just like we don't need to have everyone involved here. Like the war mm-hmm. is not even just the main story at this point. So yeah, yeah, it, we're, it, we're just going to involve the characters that make sense. Yeah. The war is even honestly at this point, a secondary story. Yeah. So like, yeah, the fact, like I felt, I think one of the, one of the reasons like I liked this chapter so much is because it surprised me with how enjoyable mm. and how good it was. Um, like it's kind of like, it's fine. It's kind of like finding like a a French fry in the bottom of your of your <laughs> your your fast food bag. Um, I'm gonna go in with a little bit of like Jim Gaffigan here, but like 
it's also like then picking up that french fry and finding out that it's like really really well cooked and still warm and like just actually happens to be have just the right amount of seasoning on it and you're just really surprised by that bonus french fry in the the bottom of your bag like yeah you you had no expectations for that being good at all it was just something that was in there that you were just gonna happen to eat but when it's really good it's just like that extra icing of like this is fantastic like I almost didn't I almost threw that away. Yeah. <laughs> like Yeah, I think we're we're definitely won over by the end and like, you know, finding out at the end that, you know, the heart of our our story this chapter is really the field surgeons um because like they see all of this death and destruction and they're trying to help people throughout and so we learn that um, really the only member of the group to survive is Shawnee. Everyone else dies within weeks and years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, you know, Iola and Rusty die saving people at their own risk. Mm. And so, Because they're fucking doctors and that's what they fucking do. And it's beautiful because, you know, we see the sacrifice. We see like you know at the the end of this these were really good people Mm -hmm. that were just trying to make a a good impact on the world and and i think that's what's really beautiful about this chapter is we see a lot of grace under pressure we see a lot of you know good people in the midst of strife and i think Mm. that is a a human story and it gives us hope and it gives us faith and like it is good to see that life is continuing like Yare naming, you know, his grandchild being named after Siri. It reminds us that, you know, life goes on even after these really horrible moments. And so I I thought that the ending of it and where it ended up, um, you know, this really human moment between these field surgeons who have just gone through unbelievable trauma was just like, such a, a lovely way to end this really horrible and sometimes gut-wrenching chapter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I loved the little bit, um, one of the reasons I loved the bit with Yare and his granddaughter um, is because kind of like one of the things that gets you beyond trauma um, is kind of, like you said, realizing that, you know, the, that life does continue to go on um, but kind of relishing in the the good things that happen in life um, that, you know, are, are, are removed from that trauma. Um, you know, you, that Yare's granddaughter will likely know nothing, nothing like the conflict that he experienced. She will know nothing similar to that struggle that he experienced. And the reason that she will know none of that is because that he did. Yeah. Um, and kind of relishing in that, that, that knowing that she will never know hardship of that nature. It's very true. Sorry, that got a little heavy. No, I <laughs> And mean, I didn't mean it to. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's very beautiful. I think that's definitely part of the story and something that helps us, you know, move on after moments of very you know a lot of pain a lot of suffering um i thought this was a really beautiful chapter maybe one of the better ones throughout the entire series 
Um, what he was able to accomplish was masterful. Um, we are moving on to another really heavy chapter next week. Uh, chapter okay. nine. Okay. Um, so we will be talking about Siri and um, Vilgefortz's castle and mm. what happens next with that leg of the journey. So um, lots to talk about there. Not going to give anything away, but mm. prepare yourselves. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm gonna come. Gonna probably try and find something happier to drink, um, and maybe come pre-prepared uh, with uh, maybe some like YouTube videos of like cute kittens or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a smart idea. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know what else to do to prepare. Um, maybe just have some tissues on hand or something while I'm reading. Okay. Oh, okay. You're nodding your head. Yes. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yep. All right. I guess we're going to, we're going to have to brace for some impact here on the next chapter, but um, I think the fire is getting a little low here. I think until next time uh, I'm going to have to learn to stitch my colors together. Um, I don't know where the blue one goes. Uh, that that's a I new one on me. They didn't mention that one, so I'm thinking blue to blue to brown. Just to throw it on the pile of limbs already, John Mark. Okay, that. Um, but this one, the blue is still attached. Well, then unattach it. But it seems important. That's fine. Okay. All right. We're field surgeons, <laughs> not miracle workers. Okay. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Don't sew blue to brown. I'm John Mark. And I'm Alexa. Good night. Good night.